Food for Thought on News Talk 760 WJR is presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here's your host, Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening. It's been said that opportunity knocks once, but temptation bangs on your door for years. As leaders of this work across Michigan, we understand that a large part of our responsibility is to be ready when opportunity comes knocking, to have our organizations ready so we are able to walk through the opening that is set before us. When opportunity arrives, we can't be scrambling around trying to get ourselves ready. We as leaders must see before, beyond, and better than anyone else so we can have our organizations prepared. If we aren't, then we probably aren't leading as well as we should be. Today, Jerry Brisson and I are going to discuss three opportunities that are coming to our network. These opportunities are big, audacious, and they have the potential to make us grow in our capacity as leaders so we can reach the next level of food security here in Michigan. Stay tuned. Jerry joins me in the studio right after this commercial break. Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. Welcome back, everybody. Jerry Brisson, welcome back to the studio. It's always good to be here every week. It's a ton of fun. It's a lot. It is good. We're glad you're here. Uh, obviously, you're the CEO and president for the Gleaners Community Food Bank in Southeast Michigan. You're also the chairman of the Food Bank Council of Michigan Board of Directors, or actually the president of that board. According and, to the bylaws, that's according exactly According to the bylaws, right. yeah. And we do live by the bylaws. So, also... Um, we had a, a great show last week with Cheryl Kirschenbaum, and we're continuing that discussion about evidence-based policies, and uh, we're trying to put some feet to that, right, and really develop some some pilots and some ideas that prove not only our impact, but really would influence policy. And the first one I want to dive into really is kind of about evidence-based process, uh, because you got to think about if you don't know where you need to be, then getting anywhere is good enough, right? So you have to have a process where you start by saying, well, what is it we're trying to do? What would make things better? What is the problem that we see that needs to change so that the community's better off? And by starting with that, you can create a process where you can measure every step of the way, are we getting where we said we wanted to be? And with with education, which we say is one of the biggest beneficiaries of food security, mm-hmm. we're creating a really effective process for looking at how we can get school kids and their households to be food secure. We call it best food forward. Best food forward. So, Walk us through that. I mean, because I know that you've solicited some entire school districts, starting with the superintendents. And, you know, and I think that's really important because a big key to this thing is we have to define reality, right? The first responsibility of leadership, we've got to be able to say this is what reality actually looks like. 
And people can't be scared to do that. Well, and the the superintendents know the reality. They're the ones that are hearing from their principals and teachers how many kids are coming to school that haven't had any food over the weekend, and they are frustrated that it's so much harder for those kids to stay awake. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have kids who, because they can't concentrate, are nervous and jumping around and, and you know, not just falling asleep, but both ends of the spectrum. So so the superintendents already know the reality. What we're going in and saying is, okay, let's work with the Michigan Department of Education, who's responsible for setting nutrition policy for schools. Mm-hmm. Let's look at all the programs that exist at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level. Let's see which of those are working. Which of those are the schools currently using? How do we learn about what's effective and what's not? Then let's get some short-term wins. Let's make some changes in the short term to make programs better. And I want to say that the Michigan Department of Education has been very willing to be part of this process. If they can do something to make a, a legislative change or a um, uh, administrative change sure. that's going to make things better, they're right at the table saying, okay, we want to do that. The schools then have to look at what they can do to improve the the food that, that kids are getting, and then we can go to the next step, which is, okay, now that we've made things as good as they can be, how do we get kids to full food security? And one of the things we know is you can't have a food secure child if you don't have a food secure household. So you've got to look beyond the child. You've got to look at the household. Then we're going to take the best answer we can, which is going to involve the schools, the Michigan Department of Education, the food banks, the families, the teachers, the administrators, everyone coming together to say, here's what we think would be the best possible solution. We'll pilot it and we'll have evidence to show how much did it work, how much did it cost, and what do we need to do next to make it even better. Let me let me walk you back just a minute. So thanks for outlining that program for us, Best Food Forward. So it starts with an environmental scan across the district. And I think that's really important because the superintendent, as we sat with him in these two instances, really gave permission to the food folks in his that are that are working in his cafeteria and all of those places to be candid, to be very honest, because there are some programs that may be working really well, some pro- programs not working very well at all, and we had to be able to define that. So I really want to emphasize that that takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of um, candidness, a lot of honesty to be able to do that. The other thing I want to talk get you to, and you may have to pick this up on the other side of the break, I'm not sure, is that you said it's, it's impossible virtually to have a food secure student in a food insecure household. So we're talking about evidence-based data that influences policy, and we know that in some federal policy that runs contrary. So in the summer feeding program, it has to be a congregate eating. They have to meet at a place and they have to consume the food on site because the idea behind this legislation is that we don't want to provide food into the household. So that's a very expensive program that's reimbursable to us, to the federal government, but still one of the most expensive programs that food banks are interested or are involved in. So how does having a food secure student in a food insecure 
household run against that federal policy? Yeah, so I think the short answer is if you let people take food home and prepare it, it is significantly less expensive than if you prepare it for them and make them eat it, whether it's the food they want right now or not. So you have food waste issues, you have the cost to to actually prepare the food, and that's obviously both food and labor cost. Then you have to keep it at a certain temperature, you have to monitor the temperatures of that food. There's a lot more administration involved in distributing prepared food than to give people groceries that they can make at home. And the vast majority of families would make the food at home. And when it comes right down to it, we can provide a meal for somewhere between 20 and 70 cents for people to take home versus a over, you know, $2 cost to prepare it and bring it. Now, over $2 is still inexpensive by, you know, any standard because sure. the average price people pay for food is between 4 and $5 a meal. Right. So we're still efficient, but when you look at the big picture of how much you could even do more, you really want to get people to take the food home and then you can feed the whole family for the same cost that you're just feeding the child. Well, and I think it's really important as we close this segment out to know that, you know, the the premise for this is what would what do you think the educational outcomes would be if every student and their family in your school district was food secure? What would be the effect on attendance, on behavior, as you mentioned a few moments ago? What would be the uh, effect on uh, outcomes, uh, third grade reading level by third grade, which is a great predictor of graduation rates? And so what would what would be the outcome if pe- if hunger was off the table and people were not living under that toxic stress of food insecurity. Great program, Jerry. Best food forward. Well, Jerry and I will be right back. We're going to pick up uh, another topic. And you wouldn't think this had a lot to do with uh, food banks, but trade tariffs. Jerry and I will be right back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight on WJR. All right, we're back here on Food for Thought. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. And uh, Jerry, you wouldn't think this would have anything to do with what we're doing in trying to create food security across the state. Trade mitigation. Yeah, the exciting thing to me about this issue is it speaks to the effectiveness of food banks across the country. Um, So there's 205 food banks that are members of Feeding America that are responsible for distributing food to every county in the United States. And and collectively, it is, it is something around 5 billion pounds of food. So because we have the systems in place already to do that efficiently, and keeping in mind that most food banks, 95 cents or more of every dollar goes to the food production with only 5 cents or less going to administration and fundraising, right? We're very right. efficient. We get the food out to hundreds of thousands of people, even millions of people nationwide. And so we as a solution exist, people know about us, and they rely on us. Right Now, what does that have to do with tariffs? When the tariffs started to come about to change the trade realities between the United States and a lot of other people, 
Some of the first people affected were farmers. And the reason is that food is one of the United States' biggest exports. And so if we put trade tariffs on other countries, then they reciprocate by putting tariffs on what they get from us. A lot of that is food. Yep. Now, we had the, the Michigan milk producers in here talking about this from their experience, the markets they've tried to develop internationally, mm-hmm. and some of the specific struggles that they experience as yep. a result of these Ken tariffs. Ken Nobis from That's, the Michigan Milk Producers Association. Exactly right. And so... What happened was the the federal government heard this and they said, yeah, we got to do something to keep the farmers going because we don't want them going out of business while we're dealing with these trade issues. So what? how can we help the farmers? And in pretty short order, they said, hey, we've got all these food banks out here that do a great job, that are very efficient. So what we think we can do is buy the food that would otherwise be exported at a pretty good price that's good enough for the farmers to stay afloat, but a good deal for us. We're going to get that food to the food bank network, and they will distribute that to the communities they serve. And that is a good idea. Yeah, it has worked really good. In fact, coming to Michigan, Jerry, uh, in the next quarter, that is January to March, March, April, there's going to be a little over 8 million pounds of food that is coming to Michigan that otherwise would not have come through trade mitigation foods. And the Food Bank Network, our seven Feeding America food banks here in the state that serve all of Michigan, will be distributing over 7 million of that 8 million pounds of food. And I think that really speaks to your point about capacity. And readiness, which was your monologue topic, right? Yep. If you're in leadership, you have to be ready for opportunities when they come. And so the conversation started immediately, and they asked us, hey, we've got these kinds of products. We've got frozen and canned pork. We've got fresh produce, including apples and potatoes. We've got fresh fruit, including grapes, oranges, and pears. We have walnuts, pistachios, and pecans. We have cheese, orange juice, rice, dried cranberries, plums and prunes, beef, peanut butter. That's a huge variety. Fresh milk. And who can take all that? Well, we can. And so we're happy to do it. It really is helping us serve the community more and better with food they want and need. And again, a a good example of how um, food banks and our legislators and our the people that work for us hard in the government can make things work and work better when there's a problem. So this all this emergency food is what we'll call it, TFAP, the Emergency Food Assistance Program, and the Trade Mitigation Food, all flows through the Department of Education. And the leader there is Dr. Diane Golzinski. And her and she and her team are responsible for seeing how this food gets distributed. And, of course, they came to the Food Bank Council and our network immediately. So I, something that I think is, is, is um, worthy of note here is you made a point uh, in some private conversations, and we've carried that into the public spectrum, that there was a bit of pushback from some folks that said, wait a minute. You're going to give us all this food to uh, to distribute, but you're not going to give us any funding to distribute that food. And you made a great point, and I think it should be made here. Well, 
we get food donations all the time. And when people donate food to us, our next question isn't, are you going to give us money too? So, what, <laughs> so we, have to be, we have to be grateful. So you're not going to say that to the <laughs> potato farmer that gives you a truckload, 40,000 pounds of, of potatoes, and say, oh, gee, wow, thanks for the potatoes. Aren't you going to give me some money to distribute this as well? Yeah. You don't do that? <laughs> we don't do that. And, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking maybe we should if it's effective. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that'll be a topic for another show. So I, I think that one of the things, and our, our attitude is that we know that our job is to find a way to take food that's available and get it to people that need it. And that's largely what we fundraise around. That's largely what we tell the community, this is what you can make happen by your gift to us. And so we're able to add value to these programs, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there is a limit, and there's no question that when you get 8 million pounds of food, it costs some money to distribute. In one quarter. Absolutely, right? And so, you know, it is certainly helpful when money comes with the food but uh, but of course that's the and and I know a lot of you listening are people that do support us and so this is a really good time to say thank you and let you know it really does matter and it and it makes it possible for us to take advantage of these opportunities well we have individuals donors and we have corporate donors like the sponsor of our show Michigan uh, Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan, which has come along right of side of us and this food for thought endeavor so that we can have these conversations. So this might be a little wonky and then too far in the weeds and you guys tell me, but there is some money coming along with this trade mitigation food. It's about $2,000 per truckload. And that equates to about five cents per pound our actual cost across the network are about 15 cents per pound, but a nickel's good. Right. Well, that's right. I mean, it all gets us to where we need to be. And, and then, of course, we're going to take advantage of economies of scale to drive some of that cost down, too. So we're going to be efficient, and we're going to take the funds we can get, and then we're going to say to you all, hey, we need a little bit more. Well, the good news, too, is there's some some discretionary funds that are coming with this money as well that will flow through the Michigan Department of Education, and they're creating policy around that right now. In fact, some of our team members are meeting with their team in order to discuss, you know, just a simple idea in our mind is if we're distributing about 80 or 85 percent of the food that's coming through trade mitigation, perhaps about 80 to 85 percent of this funding ought to flow through to make sure that that happens in a most, as you said, in a most efficient way. We'll wait to see how that policy shakes out. Well, and we're not going to just wait, right? We're actually going to be at the table, so that helps too. Well, we're going to be we're going to deliver the food, distribute the food to hung, our hungry neighbors, no matter what the policy says. That's right. That's right. And so that's again a strength of a network that's been around forty or more years, and that continues to make this its number one priority. Food first, folks. Have you ever heard that before? Yep, food first. So that's it. We we talked about best food forward. We talked about trade mitigation, and we've got one more topic for this show, which is about. The Emergency Food Assistance Program, which is another tremendously important program to us and some things that are happening there. Yep. Jerry and I will be right back to talk about TFAP in just a moment. You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Brought to you by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the studio. And uh, as promised, we're going to talk about TFAP, which is the Emergency Food Assistance Program. And it's been around, 
a number of years, Jerry. Well, it's part of the Farm Bill. So just to cover briefly, the Farm Bill is the most important piece of legislation for food supplemental food of any kind, but it also covers lots of things around farming and agriculture, and it puts it all together because they belong together. If you're going to feed the community, you got to know about farmers and what they need. You bring that together and you create policies that help farmers, the economy, and hungry people. That's the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill is from from farm to fork. Anytime, anything that has to do with food in between those two instances, no matter where your fork's at, home, restaurant, wherever, it affects it affects food. So it's federal legislation that then gets tossed to the states. Then the states decide how are they going to administer those programs, whether that's SNAP, which used to be food stamps, or whether it's the Emergency Food Assistance Program, which is the one mm. we're going to talk about, which is buying commodities and other right. food products and getting those commodities to people who need it. Absolutely. So, and this farm bill only comes up every five years. So it's, you know, all encompassing legislation. It's a huge piece and it lasts a really long time. So you either get it right <laughs> or you, or you get live it wrong with it. for a long time. Right. That's right. Yeah, you live with it. So uh, the particular part we want to talk about here is in the beginning is about TFAP. And that's really important to food banks. This is the Emergency Food Assistance Program. And so basically what happens uh, here in Michigan, the Food Bank Council of Michigan takes orders from uh, the seven different food banks. They have essentially monopoly money. Uh, It's not real dollars, but it's a dollar amount in an account and says you can order anything in this food catalog for your the people that you're serving in your area. And we take all the food bank orders and we place those with the Michigan Department of Education, who places the order to the USDA, and then that food comes to Michigan and gets distributed through the food banks into our pantry network to our hungry neighbors. And the catalog gets built by the USDA based on the food that's available, that needs to be purchased so that pricing can be... um, stabilized and to make sure that the economic realities for farmers stays okay so they can stay in business. If farmers go out of business, we don't eat. It is very important to have programs that help farmers leverage the various conditions that they live in every year, whether that's weather conditions or other growing conditions that make either more or less crops available. So one of the areas that 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 has not happened to the level that it should has been here in Michigan has been dairy farmers. Talking with Ken Nobus from the Michigan Milk Producers Association, when he was on the show, he reminded us that uh, that approximately 100 dairy farmers are going out of business here in Michigan over the last few years. And that's a significant thing. And, it, you know, of course, that affects production and that in turn affects pricing. So here's where the farm bill, which is currently being uh decided what elements are going to be, there was a conversation that they want to decrease the amount of funding available to TFAP while increasing the amount of the amount of money available to pilot programs and other things which have far less likelihood of providing the same impact. Now, how does that happen? Well, that happens when you have non-evidence-based policymakers. So we want to put forward pretty strongly that the TFAP program 
is one of the things that produce the highest return on investment of any government program. Hmm. And it helps the economy and it stabilizes farms. It was a smart idea when it came about. It's still a smart idea. And eroding that to accomplish something that might or might not work is simply a mistake. Yeah. So there's the, the Senate version of this bill and there's the House version of this bill. And so this has become out in just the last few days here uh, where they want to cut TFAP significantly. And our network, the entire Feeding America network, was pretty happy with the funding at the Senate level. Uh, it probably wasn't quite the increase that the entire Feeding America network wanted, but we were willing to live with it because the Senate version of the bill preserved SNAP. But now in the House, they've said that we want to cut that a little bit, and we want to do that at the cut snap at the expense of funding, as you said, some programs that may or may not have impact, certainly to the level that TFAP does, and we think that's a mistake. Well, bottom line is we do need innovation, and we do need ways to improve the system, and we are first at the table to talk about how things can be better. Now, when you've got a network of food banks that are operating at 95% efficiency or better, and you've got a program that's driving both economic success and stability on farms, and you're getting that food to millions of people across the country who need it, it seems like not the place to be looking for, well, maybe we should try something new, and yeah, we don't know if it's going to work. It just seems like that's not the right place to look. So where do you look? Well, of course, that's the question, right? So our process and why we have to do things like this is to say, stop the train, let's take a hard look at this, let us have a chance to tell you where we think the impact could be most, and if you're talking about food, which is what the Farm Bill is, that is what we know about. We do know about it. So I guess what we're really asking is, if you believe what Jerry and I are sharing with you and you feel like a call to action, we seem to be doing this a little bit more uh, often lately, then to uh, email Senator Stabenow and Senator Peters and let them both know that we want the Farm Bill to pass with the SNAP funding at the Senate levels. And so we don't want that to be compromised at all so that TFAP continues to flow through the food ranks, out through our pantry network, and creates food security for our hungry neighbors here in Michigan. So, Jerry, I think that we covered those pretty well. Is there anything else about TFAP that you can think about that's in, that, that our listeners should know? Well, I think another thing that, that's evolving around TFAP is the way that food gets distributed in Michigan. And we're having a lot of conversations about how can we look at this whole uh, distribution model and make it better. So I think, I think as we're not talking about something that's, you know, distant from us, we're also looking at it as close to home as possible so that we can keep the highest level of service to the community at the highest level of efficiency at the best price. And so while those conversations are going on, I'm just going to say, stay tuned. I think we're going to have more to say about that. I think it's going to be good. Again, we have willing partners at the table, just like in education at the Michigan Department of Education, to talk about how do we continue to look at what's best for our community. I think that's well said. And I would say, I would echo that. Stay tuned because uh, this policy is being evaluated by the Michigan Department of Education and we are at the table. In fact, we're, we're, we want to help frame that conversation so that it's, it's done 
in a way that best benefits the people we serve and the communities they live in. So we're not just about getting handouts here. No. We're about making systems that work better and creating the evidence, the actual, this is what happens, this is the impact, describing that impact, knowing what the truth is, building on the truth to make systems that work for people and the community. I like that. We'll leave it right there. Jerry and I will be right, right back to recap the show in just a few moments. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight, presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Once again, here's Dr. Phil Knight. We're back. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. And so it's been a show with just us. That's pretty unusual. Normally we have some spectacular guests, but it's just been us, Jerry. Spectacular us. Well, that too. (laughs) Not just us, but spectacular us. Right, there we go. So three really important topics, you know, that relates to our ability to... to, um, accomplish our mission. Now, our mission for across the state is to create a food secure Michigan. And that way that that children and seniors and everybody in between are rescued from the toxic stress of food insecurity because we know how debilitating that is. I mean, we say it, if you're hungry, you only have one problem. And I think it's important to keep connecting the dots. So we spent a lot of time today on federal and state programs and efforts that affect food security in our state. And some time explaining each one of those so people can understand the impact and and how this all works. So when you hear these words, they actually mean something to you. But it all comes back to a clearer understanding of impact, Hmm. that we're not talking about federal programs to fund things because, well, they've always been funded. We're talking about understanding that there is still a significant food security gap, that that food security gap affects not just the people who are hungry, but it affects businesses, it affects health care, it affects education, and if we really want to see our community move forward, we have to grapple with the legislation that was created a long time ago when there was not the evidence that we have today about what should be done, how it should be done, for whom should it be done, how often it should be done, and what results we should get when it's done. And so we're just a lot better now than we've ever been understanding the fundamental realities that drive success around food security and how those successes create success in the community. So that mission of creating food security has some benefits at the household level. And I want you to talk about those for just a minute. I mean, when you put this food into a home and that home becomes food secure, in other words, they don't have to worry about their next meal or what they're going to give their kids tonight or tomorrow, they become at least three things because of that economic contribution into that family's household. That's right. Starting with that economic value that food gives, right? It's worth money, even right. though it's food, right? And so it stabilizes households. It it means if there's things, if trade-offs that they're making, and we talk about those trade-offs, people deciding between paying their utilities or paying their rent and paying for food. We know that the average low-income household has to make those trade-offs every month and decide, what can I afford? And one of the few things they have control control over is their food budget. And so they often spend less than they need to, and that creates tremendous instability in the household. When you take that issue away and provide them the food, it means they have fewer trade-offs, more stability. But another area it contributes to, that is food in the household and the economic impact of that, 
is once they become stable, they also reach a new level of empowerment. That's right, because now they can see farther ahead. So when you're struggling to the point where you're not eating enough, that's pretty hard struggle, right? How many problems do you have? That's right. So you can only see so far ahead. As you get rid of those barriers, people have more opportunity to think about what else they can solve for themselves. And that is exactly what people do. People want to solve their own problems. By and large, that is what we see in our work. And so when you take a problem away, it allows them to solve the next problem on their own. And most people do and will, which is why when people get assistance, they don't get it forever. People are on and off assistance as episodes happen in their life so that they're trying to solve these problems on their own. So we want to empower that. We want to enable that. And that's one of the things that happens when you take hunger off the table. Well, and they're free. Their mind is free then where where previously when they only had one problem, what am I going to eat and what am I going to give my kids? Now their mind is free to think about that job opportunity or that training opportunity to get the better job. And that leads to empowerment. And... When you think about the cost, it's so ridiculously low. We're getting food out to people to between 30 and 70 cents a meal. So to provide both stability and empowerment would be amazing return on investment. But we have one more. Yeah. And that's health. And we talk about it a lot on this show. But upwards of 70% of prescriptions say take with food. If you have any health concern and you are food insecure, your medication is not working right. And that costs a lot of money. Healthcare is now one-fifth of the entire economy. Why is that? Well, we know a huge opportunity exists by giving people the food they need so that they don't have to have so much health care. Right. Well, and even if they do have food, let's say they're at some level of being food secure, because of the trade-offs that you mentioned a while ago, it's not the best food. So, I mean, cheap food is not necessarily the most healthy food. So more than likely full of sodium. And, and the way you and I were thinking about this is chronic disease of diabetes and high, hypertension and those areas. But we had a doctor who looked at us and said, where the area you're going to have the most immediate impact is someone who has heart surgery. Because if they go home with a medicine that says take with food and they don't have any food... What happens when you take medicine on an empty stomach? Well, you get sick, and so you don't do it anymore. Or even what could be worse is when they take their medicine with cheap food that's full of sodium. Well, guess who's coming back to the hospital within that 30-day window where 74% of hospitals across America get penalized for readmission? Right. And, And again... People win when this problem is solved. So when we talk about legislation, one of the things that we're trying to do is connect the dots. The decision makers who are writing legislation need to understand the value of the food that they're providing through this legislation. They need to understand the impact they're having. They need to understand the cost of getting that impact so they can weigh that with all of the other issues that they have to grapple with, fund, and make happen. And so we want to make it easier, but we don't want to make it easier just to support the work that we like. We want to make it easier to to support what's making the community better, what's driving positive change, what's keeping people at work, what's keeping kids learning in school, what's what's keeping people out of the hospital, and, and making sure that the community can be as successful as it can. And that is the dynamic impact of food security. It is. It's the dynamic concept behind Food First. 
Looking at Maslow's hierarchy of need, when you solve physiological air, water, food, people are free to then move through that pyramid of motivation and begin to solve problems, as you said, yourself. And that's the relationship of societal changes and food security. So I think we're on a good track here. I mean, this I know some of the stuff in this show seems distant because we're talking about federal legislation and state programs, but I'm going to tell each of you listening right now, everything we talked about today is affecting your community and the people in your community. It is really important, and we're changing the conversation about food security because we believe this problem is solvable, and it's up to us to solve it. Lots of great opportunities. I think it's time for a little food for thought. Well, change is inevitable, but growth is optional. If indeed everything rises and falls on leadership, then we should all want to grow ourselves big enough to match the need, especially in regards to food security. We want to grow up. We want to grow out. We want to grow to meet the need. I'm convinced we cannot attain our dreams by remaining the same. However, change is inevitable, but growth is optional. If leadership counts, if it matters, if it is the difference maker that I believe it is, then we must grow ourselves as leaders to match the size of the problem. Remember, leaders grow daily, not in a day. But opportunities are coming to us every day, and they surround us. We must grow to both see and seize them. Remember, if you've missed a show or if you're interested in how food security affects a specific area of your community, look for us at foodsecuremichigan.org, and you'll see all of our shows categorized by topic. Don't forget to follow me at DrPhil14 on Twitter and welcome our esteemed thought leader to Twitter as well. Follow Jerry, that's with a G, Jerry at GCFBJerry, G-E-R-R-Y, on Twitter. That's it for today. Tune in next week for another edition of Food for Thought. And until then, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.